Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. you again this Sunday morning to be able to study God's Word. It's so wonderful to sing that song almost home as a church family, right? Being able to look each other in the eye and sort of lift our voices together and something different between sitting at home saying that to yourself versus a room full of other people that's heading to that same home. But it's even more special when you can share that moment with people that you love dearly that not only here every week. And so we have family here from Germany. So Micah and Luis are all the way here from Germany. And with us, as you guys know, they've been part of our church for a couple of months and years ago. And they got married and now they're back just visiting for us for a couple of weeks. And so it's our joy. If you guys just quickly want to stand and everyone can see you and we can greet you. Awesome. Well, guys, good to be with you. And now it's good to be able to come study God's Word with you. So if you want to take your Bibles again... And open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, and that is where we find the Ten Commandments uh, that God has given us. The Ten Commandments that, you know, the law of God, as we said before, it acts as this fence. This fence that God puts around us so that we would know what He expects of us. That we don't run around like these wild animals doing everything our evil hearts tell us to do. This law is also a mirror, revealing to us what's really going on in our hearts, being able to see our sin for what it really is. And when we look at the world and how the world considers the Ten Commandments, it's evident that it doesn't care about the kind of God they worship. It's evident it doesn't care about having set aside one day to rest in His grace and to worship Him exclusively. It's evident that the world doesn't care about having affairs and being unfaithful to your spouse. I mean, there's even TV shows where the whole point of the show is for people to see how unfaithful they can be to in their relationship. And the more adultery and sexual immorality there is, the more amount of views it gets. Because for some reason, people are entertained by this gross stuff. But even though the unbelieving world doesn't care about most of the Ten Commandments, the one that almost everyone would agree with, without needing any warning, or to even be convinced of God's existence, is the Sixth Commandment. The sixth commandment that says, You shall not murder. No one wants to live in constant fear of losing their life. 
No one wants to see their loved ones taken away from them. No one wants to be a murderer. No one wakes up and says, I want to be a murderer. Because there's something about the sanctity of life that is way deep down inside all of us. And the Christian worldview understands this even more. Because when God created the world, we see something special was going on. Especially when He was creating human beings. Look at me quickly again just at the beginning of life in the book of Genesis. We see that the Bible teaches that God, God simply said, Let there be light, and there was light. He said, Let there be animals, and there were animals. But then things slow down. And God uses more words when creating human beings. Because everything God is doing in this chapter is clearly leading to something. God is pausing in this opening narrative about creation because He's about to create something very special. One man writes, he says, This text clearly has a goal to which everything is directed. Namely, the creation of humanity on the sixth day. In other words, what we see from the beginning of the Bible is that humanity is the actual goal of creation. It's like what's happening in, in days 1 to 5 is that God the Creator is preparing this world, this land as a home, and He, he says it's good, it's good, it's good. And you have to wonder, what is it good for? And what we see is that it's a good place for God's people to live. He makes this amazing world and He makes man and He puts him down in the middle of this new home uh, and, and through human beings. Now He wants to extend His glory and bless the world. And so think of the implications of this. This means that it's an amazing privilege to be a human being. Moses puts it like this, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so what's important from these passages to recognize again is that no other living creature was given the dignity that God gave human beings. Humans are unique because we are made in the image of God. And to be made in the image of God means that we are to be His earthly representatives, His image bearers. But not, not only has a great purpose for us in this life, what we know from the Bible is that human beings who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus will one day be welcomed into the very presence of this deep, relational, intimate love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a world where there's never going to be murder ever again. Nothing else in this creation has that privilege. Now we think how unique human beings are from Jesus' perspective. Because what does Jesus pray for when He speaks to the Father in John chapter 17? 
John 17, 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus has this amazing desire for human beings in a very special way. Why? Why? Because there's no other created being destined to share in the glory that the Father is going to give to His Son. No other created being is as treasured and as loved as much as those made in His image. And that is why the sixth commandment is so important. Our job on this planet is to be God's image bearers. And that means not only do we have this great purpose to to multiply and subdue the earth and extend His glory, but we are made with great love and dignity. And think about this. This is all of us. Black, white, Indian, colored, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. Every single human being on this planet is made to be God's representative. But then you read further along in Genesis. And what is the very next sin we see recorded in the Bible after the fall in Genesis chapter 3? You come to Genesis 4, 8, and you see a brother becoming so angry, and what does he do? He murders his own image-bearing brother. And things just get worse from there. That God even says that He regrets that He had made man. And He washes it all clean through this great flood. And He starts over. I like how one man says it. He says it like this. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly tells people never to make images of Him. But the whole story of the universe begins with God making an image of Himself. That's you. That's you. Being a human being matters. And that is why the sixth commandment is there. Because what we will see today is that the more we understand what the command actually forbids, and the more we understand how we all break this commandment ourselves, the more we will see the true transformation is required that only Jesus can provide. That's the three headings we're going to look at today. First, we're going to talk about what is actually forbidden by this command. Second, we're going to talk about how do we fail to keep this command today. And then thirdly, we're asking, is real transformation possible? Is real transformation possible? Now, if we think about Israel, in the context of the Ten Commandments again, They've just been set free from slavery out of Egypt. And we know from the Bible that a lot has happened up until this point. But through the sixth commandment, God was telling His people on Mount Sinai that murder and being set free from slavery, they don't go together. Because remember what Pharaoh did, he ordered the murder of all these Israelite boys. And now by contrast, Israel was commanded to respect and protect the lives of God's people. But if you remember from last week, what do we say was the punishment for those who dishonor their parents? Do you guys remember? 
from the Old Testament. What was the punishment for dishonoring your parents? It was being stoned to death, right? Being stoned to death. So how does this work? God is commanding us to not murder, and yet we see that sin is so serious that it requires the death penalty. And so to help us understand how this all works, we first need to understand, number one, what does the command actually forbid? What does the command actually forbid? Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, in most cases, the translation says, you shall not murder. Which is right, you shall not murder. But there are a few versions that translate this command, you shall not kill. And the word kill is not the accurate rendering of this command here. Because the word kill gives you the idea that no one is allowed to kill anything. Some people take this to mean that you're not allowed to go to war. Government is not allowed to exercise capital punishment when someone is put to death for taking someone else's life. The word kill also gives people the idea that we're not allowed to take a life when we are defending ourselves. And some even take it further to suggest that the sixth commandment prohibits that we're not even allowed to kill animals. But if that is true, then as we look at the Bible, it must mean that God is somehow contradicting Himself. Because there are several times in the Bible where God Himself is the one who commands the actions of His people to include the taking of a life. Listen to these examples. Deuteronomy 20 verse 16. God says, But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Well, think about what Moses says after this golden calf incident. He gathers the Levites and he says in Exodus 32:27, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And so to make sense of all of this, we need to notice that Moses chose his words carefully in the Ten Commandments. God is not contradicting what he commanded or said, because the word used in the Sixth Commandment is not the word kill. The word is used the word ratzach. Ratzach, which specifically talks about murder. Murder, and not just killing in general. Because murder is different. Murder refers to the premeditated taking of an innocent life. The deliberate killing of another enemy. I mean, the specific Hebrew word here means to, to shatter or break in pieces. And when it's used in the Bible, it's almost always referring to premeditated manslaughter. Assassination of a personal enemy or getting revenge in a, in a murderous way. So this word is not used for the, the killing of animals. It's not used in self-defense like in Exodus 22.2. 2. 
It's not used in accidental killings where someone loses his life in an accident caused by someone else. Rather, what we see from Deuteronomy 19.5 is that God actually makes provision for some to find refuge if a life is lost due to an accident. But what the sixth commandment does forbid is when a community wants to take justice into their own hands and kill the person who caused the accident. I think we've seen this in Africa, right? Because what the sixth commandment has in mind is not the destruction of life, but the preservation of life. The preservation of life. Look at what Genesis 9 verse 6 says. This is what God says. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, there's going to be times where a murderer must be executed by the hands of men to protect and preserve life. To prevent him or her from taking any more lives. But do you see the reason that God gives you? What's the reason? He says, for God made man in his own image. Therefore, something that the best translation of the sixth commandment is actually, you shall not kill unlawfully. And so to be clear, what this commandment forbids is for someone to take a life in a way that would be typically as how we would understand murder. Where they have motive, evil intents. All their sinful behavior has caused someone else to, to lose their life. You think of a drunk guy driving and causing an accident. Because what's at stake here is the glory of God. Think about this. The psalmist says in Psalm 118.17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. We are made to declare what God has done and give Him glory. And if you take someone's life, you are robbing God of someone who is made to declare His glory. Or as someone else has said, killing is far more than a sin against our fellow man. It attacks and dishonors the very image of God. Murder is an attack on God Himself. And so we recognize that the sixth commandment is specific and God is prohibiting a specific kind of intent behind taking someone's life. But then we slow down and we think, what does that look like today? What does that look like today? This is point number two. How do we fail to keep this commandment today? Because the reality of our day is that we live in these violent times. In fact, we have become so desensitized to the reality of hearing someone taking another's life that it's become so normal to us. I mean, we watch it on shows. We watch it in the movies. We're being entertained by it. It's even normal for kids to play all these video games where the sole purpose of the game is to kill, to kill, to kill. One commentator says, We are teaching our children how to kill and we should not be surprised when they do. But we also see that murder can take on many forms. Some are violent. But other things, they are more sophisticated because they are walking around with a white coat. 
Unbelieving scientists and medical practitioners have influenced our world today to the extent where their view of personhood have been attacking God's way for years. In other words, the very biblical view that makes you a living person is being challenged all over the world. Let me quote what one of these medical professionals say. He says this, We can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God. Singled out from all other animals and alone possessing an immortal soul. Once this religious mumbo-jumbo has been stripped away, we may continue to see normal members of our species as possessing greater capacities of rationality, self-consciousness, communication, than members of other species. But we will not regard as sacroscant the life of each and every member of our species. You see, now if that is how people think about people, then no wonder taking someone else's life is seen as a benefit when they become a burden to us and too costly to keep them alive. Where suicide makes sense because, hey, what are you doing on this planet anyway? Where the unborn and the disabled are regarded as inconvenient and be discarded at any time. All of this indicates to us that for many people, for some, life is simply worthless. Simply worthless. Let me give you a real picture of this. The statistics don't lie. According to the World Health Organization, every year in the world there are an estimated of 40 to 50 million abortions. 40 to 50 million abortions. Now, if you do the simple math, that corresponds to 125,000 abortions per day. 125,000 glory displayers, image bearers, murdered every single day. And historically, Christians recognize and have always believed that the unborn child is a person made in the very likeness of God. I mean, listen to John Calvin. John Calvin says, The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is almost a, a monstrous crime to, to rob it of, of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. And then we read passages like Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And we know there's life inside that womb. Luke 141, because when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, what did the baby do inside her womb? It leaped for joy. This living being hears this friendly greeting in the womb, and it responds. The sixth commandment is very relevant to our day. And there are many more ethical issues that it helps to address, and that we need to think through carefully. Issues like what to do with sexual abuse, suicide, assisted suicide, or dealing with the issues of death with dignity. But what we see clearly from the Bible is that murderers are not just these violent people out there. They're not just out there in the streets, on the laboratories, and the back alley clinics. Because according to Jesus, 
I must just look in the mirror and I will see what a murderer really looks like. Because maybe you're sitting here and you think, I agree, murder is wrong. Killing unborn children is wrong. Taking your own life is wrong. And I'm sure we all agree with that. But then we turn to the New Testament and Jesus changes the way we think about this whole issue of murder. Because what does He say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.21? Listen to this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's the sixth commandment, right? You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So what Jesus is doing here is he's authoritatively interpreting the sixth commandment. And what does he say? What does he say? He says, if you get sinfully angry at someone else, you're a murderer. If you speak insults against someone else, you're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Because Jesus says this commandment, rightly understood, deals with spiritual matters. It's not just about what you do on the outside. It reaches down to the deepest corners of our hearts. I mean, listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. It says it so well. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that He hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that He regards all of these as murder. I mean, this means that if there's hatred towards someone else in your heart, we resent someone and there's this permanent vindictive grudge. The Bible calls you a murderer. If you have a desire to get back at someone, take revenge into your own hands, you're a murderer. I mean, the Apostle John, he understood what the implications of this when he said in 1 John 3.15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. I mean, or as Jesus said, it's not just hatred. It's this, this is anger. Anger is usually this passionate display of what's going on in your heart. Because, I mean, think about it. Have you ever heard someone say, if looks could kill? If looks could kill. The point that Jesus is making, it, it does. It does. Because usually what happens next is what goes on in the heart comes out of the mouth. And so our words can be these weapons of destruction, weapons of death, because every time you put someone else down, every time you speak behind their back, and even if you're whispering as softly as you can, you are breaking the sixth commandment. And the Bible calls you a murderer. And so let me ask you, are your children in danger? If we had to come to your house and Ask them, are your children in danger? Is your spouse in danger? What about your co-workers? Are they in danger? 
What about your fellow brothers and sisters in this church? Are they in danger? James 3.9 says, With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so there it is again. Cursing people made in the image of God. Your hatred and anger and tongue are personally attacking God. And you see, the consequences of this can't be more significant. It can't be more significant. John already said that eternal life does not reside in the heart of a murderer. Jesus said that if you insult others, you are liable to the hell of fire. And in the book of Revelation, it lists all these kinds of sinners who will be sent into the the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the one that really stands out is that of a murderer. So think about it. Even as we look at this room right now, if we're honest with ourselves, what I'm looking at is a room full of convicted murderers. No one is exempted from this. Myself included. And so where does it leave us? Where does it leave us? If we are just as guilty as the serial killer who is standing on trial for taking other people's lives again and again and again, what can we do? It brings us to our final point. Is real transformation possible? If we're honest with ourselves, we will quickly see that none of us is exempted from breaking the sixth commandment. Even if you're not like Cain and practice, you are guilty like he was because of what goes on in your heart. And so we recognize that we all need help. We all need someone to clear us from what we have thought, said, and done. And then we look at Jesus one more time. We look at Jesus one more time. The one who convicts us of the murder in our hearts through the Sermon on the Mount is the one who was murdered for us. And the prophet Isaiah gives us more insight into what exactly this was like for Jesus. Look at this. When he was dying for murderers like you and me, Isaiah 53.7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What's happening? This is Jesus keeping the sixth commandment on your behalf. In other words, Jesus' reaction of being provoked and beaten and bruised and led to the slaughterhouse shows us how to respond. How does Jesus respond? He responds with peace. He responds with peace. He doesn't have this outburst of anger, justifying his sinful anger, because he had no sinful anger. And so we must recognize that even if there was such a dramatic and tragic event that Jesus is being led to the slaughterhouse and being murdered for, our, for us, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for this murder because He made a way for you and me to be forgiven. Forgiven for every time we lose our cool. Every time we talk about someone else behind their back. Jesus says it again in Luke 23:34. Father, forgive them for they not, do not know what they do. 
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this is the forgiveness that you and I so desperately need. This is the forgiveness that the Apostle Peter was preaching about in Acts 2. Acts 2, in his sermon, he was accusing the very same people who crucified Jesus as being murderers. And then they realized actually what they did. And they wanted to know, what must we do, Peter? What must we do? And what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I trust God's Word is speaking to your heart right now. And I want, to know, I want you to notice something from King David. King David. You know that he sinned against God by having this affair with Bathsheba. And you know that he arranged everything so that her husband would die in battle. You know what that makes him? It makes him a murderer. A murderer. And so what can we learn about true repentance and God's mercy and forgiveness from David? Because it's very helpful to notice where David places the guilt for his sin. He says this, Have mercy, Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is before me. Against you, And you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David acknowledged the seriousness of his sin. He acknowledged that he sinned against God himself. But then look at what he says in verse 14. Psalm 51, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. See, David is not just repenting about adultery in this, in this psalm. He's repenting of being a murderer. And did God forgive him? Did God forgive David? We know that he did. The answer is yes. And I want you to hear this because if there's blood guiltiness in your life, Because of something maybe like abortion in your past. And you have not properly dealt with that. We need to talk. We need to talk. But if you have properly dealt with that sin before God by repenting and trusting in Jesus for forgiveness, God says you are forgiven. Forgiven. Completely forgiven. As if it's never happened. It's gone. Same is true for those who keep losing their temper, who lash out at others in sinful anger. If you repent of your sin and place the guilt of that sin where it needs to be, God wipes it clean. But that's not all, because what does Peter say God will give you if you truly repent? Repent of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it crazy to think that God would take a murderer, forgive him, and then gift him with his own Holy Spirit? So I want you to think about that. God doesn't just save you 
from your murderous hearts and leave you to continue living with all that anger boiling up inside of you. He gives you a new heart and the ability to change. He wants you to change. So think about it. We recognize that Jesus died for the way you completely lost it with your husband and your wife even this morning. He died for the time you said to that co-worker is so terrible and you hate working with him. But he also died for the time you got so angry at your kids because they did not honor you the way they should. And he gives you the ability to stop in that moment to change the way you respond. It gives you the power to, to be enabled to change. I mean, I, this week I, I was jokingly telling my wife that I think I know now why the, the, the commandment of not to murder comes after the commandment of honoring your parents. Because how many parents feel like they want to murder their kids for not honoring them the way they should? But the reality is we can respond differently because of Jesus. We have all the confidence that we can change by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because what is the opposite to this commandment? Instead of being image destroyers, we want to be image protectors. We want to be image lovers. Think of the Apostle John again. He said it this way. 1 John 3.11 1 John 3.11 for this is the message that I have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother is righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So look at what he's saying. Verse 11, he's saying, this message we have heard is a message of love. The message that causes us to see the love of God for us in Jesus. That message motivates us to love others. But then in verse 13, he manages our expectations again. Because what does he say? He says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Which is like saying, don't be surprised if the world wants to murder you. And so we know that even if we are going to try and love other people, it's going to be hard. And they're going to hate us for following Jesus. John says we should not become like them. We should seek to love them with Jesus' kind of love. But then look at verse 14. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. This is such a great statement. John says that to think back of what God did in saving you from eternal death and realize that He has made you alive in Him, and one way you can know it's true is by the way you love other people. If you really want to know if your heart has been transformed, look at the way you love other people. Or is there only hate and anger and slander in your heart? Back in Matthew 5 again, Jesus says like this, But I say to you, 
love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The radical call to love is a call that God expects of us because that is what Jesus did for us. While we were His enemies, we were the murderous ones, He was persecuted and He loved us by suffering in our place. Yesterday we had Soli and Morongwa's wedding and it was wonderful. It was hot. It was wonderful. And we're celebrating this love, this, this love of, you know, this idea of biblical love and what it really looks like. Because John goes on to say in 1 John 4, 10 to 11, he sums up biblical love like this. He says, and this is love. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so think about that. The sixth commandment speaks to all of us. And we need to recognize we are all guilty, we are all murderers at heart, but that Jesus loves us and He died for us. And now by faith we are able to love like He does. All because He first loved us. This is an intentional love. This is a willing love. Jesus shows us it's sacrificial love. And this love is directed towards the good of other people. Even those who hate you. We need God's help to love His image bearers. With this kind of love. And to honor the sixth command, because the reality is, God is so pro-life. God is so pro-life that He was willing to die so that we can have that new life of love in Him. And love His image bearers. If you want to know how to keep the sixth commandment, look at Jesus. Learn to love like Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have given us your Son. Father, we come before you this morning and we just look at our hearts and we see every time we get so sinfully angry, every time we get so slanderous behind other people's backs and speak evil of them. Lord, we even want to take revenge on others because of what, the way they've hurt us. And Lord, we see and we want to repent of that sin. Every time a child fights with his sibling and this anger comes out, Lord, that's murderous action that we see. And so we recognize we're all Cain's at heart. But then we also recognize that you sent your son Jesus to change all of that. And so, Father, help us to know how to love. Teach us ways we can love intentionally and willingly and sacrificially even to those who make it difficult for us. Give us grace as, as parents and as, as co-workers and as family in Jesus to love each other in this way. Help us to be zealous and bold for things like abortion. Help us to be zealous for your image bearers, to love people in such a radical way that sees your glory extended to the way people love each other. Thank you for these commandments. Thank you that they help us 
see who you are. And thank you for the absolute privilege of being your image bearers. That one day we are going to live with you in such love where there's no more murdering, no more anger, no more slander. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.